This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. And we are almost in the throes of regular football season, if you guys will believe it or not. We're one week away from college football kickoff, and now we're, what, three preseason games in for the Seattle Seahawks. Regular season? Wait. Yeah. How did it creep up on? How is it football season already? It's football season because uh, <laughs> most of the kids in our area went back to school this week already. True. Or getting ready to go to school next week. It's crazy. Yeah. How was that? How was the last couple of weeks of summer with your kids? It was great, except for all of the uh, smoke in the air. You know, we yeah. were out on Puget Sound this week and last weekend, and uh, you can't see uh, hardly anything. The, you know, the skylines that we're used to and the mountains. Um, none of it's visible. Reminds me of being in China, been there multiple times, and just the taste in the air and the visibility and the um, impact on the respiratory system is, is like being in China right now. Yeah, we've been kind of spoiled up here in the Pacific Northwest. You know, I went to college in Southern California, too, and this was uh, kind of more the the smoggy uh, East L.A. norm down there, but we get pretty spoiled up here. Well, after watching three preseason football games do you have any predictions for this year's seattle seahawks season i don't i'm going to leave it up to you two you're the experts <laughs> you two you you live and breathe this every day at work and uh so i'm going to throw it to you okay that's fair more you want to go first i know i know you, you've got yeah i mean it's always tough beforehand we have been at training camp and seen a lot firsthand i my thing is that i i think they have a really talented team i think they had a great draft they have a lot of young talent but they obviously did lose a lot of veterans last year. They had a you know a complete do-over on the coaching staff for the most part. So I think there's going to be some growing pains early. Um, but I still think as long as you have Russell Wilson, you still have Bobby Wagner, KJ Wright on defense, I'm going to go with, I think it's going to be closer just because the NFC is so tough to 8-8 eight and eight this year. Yeah, I was going to say 8 or 9 win team, and uh, I'm with you. I think the identity of this team is changing a little bit. I think for the first time, the offense might be the story more than the defense. Yeah. Um, with just the way that Russell Wilson, it looks he looks phenomenal, and uh, it's hard to say he looks better than he ever has before because it so- starts to sound like a cliche, but he really does. And I think with the offensive line, they fixed some of their problems. With the running game, they fixed some of their problems that they could actually score a lot of points. The, the downside is the defense. There's a lot of holes after all, a lot of those veteran those veteran players left and, and a lot of youth that will have to step up in that place. So there might be some growing pains, as you said, but it will be fun to watch at least. Well, I do have one observation. Oh, yeah. Uh, off the field. That is, uh, I've been down in the stadium district multiple times in the last several weeks, including this week recently, for uh, baseball and some soccer games, the Sounders and uh, concerts. And, you know, they've got all the photos of the top stars of the Seahawks plastered huge poster size on CenturyLink Field Event Center. But what image is missing? Earl is not on the building. Yeah. Right? That's a big one. Very silent the last couple weeks. And uh, that is a telling statement that his photo is not put up or it was taken down. Not up there. Yeah. In the meantime, from sports to the spirits and wine and beer industry, what's going on in the headlines this week? 
Well, for those of you that are interested in whiskey, specifically Scotch whiskey and uh, the very limited runs, our friends over in the UK at the McAllen Whiskey Distillery released a new line called Genesis, and they advertised one day they only had 360 bottles of this uh, very limited run in one of their new distilleries that they had spent 140 million uh, pounds building, and it caused chaos in the streets, literally. More than 300 cars showed up. The police from uh, the small town of Moray had to close the highway. People were in line overnight for hours, and uh, while a few of them got their hands on some bottles, uh, the rest that walked away empty-handed the next day described that it's absolute chaos. They were not happy that they didn't get bottles after waiting in line, and they described the overall lack of organizational effort by the distillery and seemingly the chaos as being very disappointing. Pretty crazy. It's like a they're our very own Black Friday kind of chaos. <laughs> but would you ever wait in line that long for any type of uh, beer, wine, or spirit? No. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounded like no. I can't think of any now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'd wait in line for much anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's plenty of other stuff to do. Very, very true. Uh, Next up, following an interesting trend that we're seeing across the board in, uh, in alcohol, in Korea, many sized beers are all the rage. And uh, South Korea specifically, the trend is being driven by female beer drinkers and uh, also people who are having more solitary drinking occasions, uh, maybe where they're celebrating a little bit or by themselves uh, around dinner or a meal. The biggest brewery is releasing a small format beer. It's called Oriental Brewery in South Korea's district. It is the largest domestic brewery, and it is releasing a 250 milliliter can instead of the usual 500 milliliter format. Now, 250 mils for us in the states here is about eight and a half ounces. Ooh. So think about uh, a can of Coke or a typical can of Budweiser, but two thirds of that size. Is that sort of a trend that you see happen a lot, Justin? Well, it's being driven by two things in consumer packaged goods, uh, food consumables. On the one hand, you're seeing the huge companies are putting things into ever increasingly smaller packages. You're seeing it with breakfast cereal and ketchup and mustard and potato chips. You know, what used to have maybe 24-ounce bags of potato chips, now all of a sudden went down to 20 then 18, then 16, and the prices remain somewhat the same. We've seen the same thing in, in the bottled soda area. Here it's being driven not by packaging reduction costs or attempting to pass on higher uh, value to the consumer with uh, less product for the same dollar amount. It's really being driven in the alcohol range by people wanting smaller servings and less alcohol. Our final story for this week, Justin, this headline seems pretty obvious to all of us here. We've talked about it in the past. Mixing energy drinks with alcohol increases risky behavior. Uh, now scientists have gone the extra step of actually trying to demonstrate it in the lab. Uh, we talk about energy drinks like Red Bull and mix it with vodka. The taurine in there, um, in the Red Bull, has an effect on the body. Researchers at the University of Portsmouth and uh, Federal University in Santa Maria took 192 zebrafish, and they separated them in uh, different small shoals. They gave them either water or taurine or alcohol in the water, or they mixed for one set of the fish, taurine and alcohol together. 
let them sit for an hour, and then watch their behaviors change. And they found that the fish that had mixed uh, taurine and alcohol spent more time in part of their zones and ex- oh, no. exhibited risky behavior. Mm-mm. And they used these fish in particular because of similarities in how they process alcohol relative to humans. So interesting that they're bringing actual scientific study to this as opposed to just speculating on it. And it's something we've talked about in the past, uh, mixing some of these high taurine energy drinks with alcohol is not good for your body, uh, but it also does appear to increase risky behavior. Something that you should have been able to figure out without getting all these poor zebrafish drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Pickled. Pickled zebrafish. (laughs) Speaking of risky behavior, coming up on Cast Club Radio, we've got some odd drinking bylaws from around the world. Where is it illegal to drink at work? Where should you not give beer to a moose? It's ahead in Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for joining us here on this fine Saturday. In the past, we've talked about maybe some weird law, weird laws involving drinking, especially in the U.S., but things get weirder, not only here, but abroad, as you explore some of the odd drinking bylaws from around the world. Justin, you guys were able to find some of these weird laws that are still on the books in certain places. Yeah, there's lots of stuff on the books uh, that has not been cleaned up. Uh, (laughs) The first one uh, deals both in the U.S. and the U.K., a similar approach to dealing with animals while under the influence. In 1872, in the U.K., they passed something called the Licensing Act, and it requires every person who is drunk while in charge of a highway or other public place of any carriage or horse or cattle or steam engine or who is drunk while in possession of loaded firearms Mm. is liable for a penalty not exceeding 40 shillings and can be put in prison for a month. Now, that basically means don't go herding livestock after having too many pints. (laughs) Uh, Here in the U.S., we found where in Colorado it is still illegal to drink while on horseback. So now, Maura, you spent time in Colorado. Did you partake in this activity? Getting drunk and horseback riding? No. That's, that no? seems okay. just as dangerous as operating a car. Like Animals are sensitive and can get spooked by things, and you, you definitely want to have your wits about you when you're on a horse, so that makes sense to me. I spent totally. uh, several summers at horse camp, and uh, they're some of the most like empathetic, emotional creatures that exist. They can sense a lot, so I, I, would, I would think that they could tell if their rider yeah. is... Rider is, if you're uh, hammered, they may try to get you off them. Exactly. Like, I, I don't want to <laughs> deal with this person. <laughs> well... I wonder, as always, and you'll see some of these, what was the final straw that broke the camel's back, no pun intended, where <laughs> they had to pass a local law, in this case in Colorado. Yeah. What happened where they said, okay, we got to put a stop to this? Was it back during cowboy days? Was it fairly recently? I'm fascinated to know. That's a very good point, Justin. As we go through all of these, keep in mind that usually at some point somebody had to break a rule or do something ridiculous in order for this to get put in place. Well, that's a good segue to this next one. (laughs) It is illegal in Alaska to give booze to any passing moose. (laughs) Have you Um, seen the size of some of them? They're huge. Who in their right mind would even approach one to try to give it booze? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, for a time being, Alaska, uh, like a lot of the states in the West, had opted out of uh, 21 being the drinking age. Now, it is still the official drinking age if you want to go buy alcohol at a store or a bar or a restaurant but in alcohol in uh, in Alaska someone who's under 21 can drink alcohol in a restaurant that does not have a license to serve alcohol 
as long as the drink in question is served to them by a parent, guardian, or spouse. When now, I worked in restaurants, I had some people in town, they may have, I don't know if this is the case in Texas as well, but they told me it was the, the case in Texas where they lived, and they were trying to order a, a drink for their daughter who was still a teenager. I'm not sure how exactly old. And I told them that they couldn't, and they're like, well, it's it's legal in Texas if your guardian or parent orders it. And I'm like, yeah, but you're in Colorado, so yeah. you have to abide by our rules. State laws. That's right. That's right. Also, uh, we found where in Ohio it is illegal to give alcohol to fish. Now, if you go back to the earlier <laughs> study we were talking about with uh, taurine and, and the zebrafish, mm -hmm. uh, if that study was being done in Ohio, that would have been illegal. Yeah. And again, I want to know who was feeding alcohol to fish. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing maybe some inebriated person that maybe alcohol <laughs> was involved in the gesture. <clears throat> Probably somebody either fishing or somebody in a fraternity house that had a fish tank and thought it'd be funny. Yeah. yeah. This next one, I think many of us uh, have actually experienced this if we've been to Utah, but they have something called the Zion Curtain. It's a piece of frosted glass and it's used to hide uh, the place where bartenders prepare drinks from the rest of the general uh, populace in a restaurant or bar. And uh, since 2009, any new bar or restaurant uh, was exempt from having to install the Zion Curtain partition, um, but it still is in effect um, around much of the state of Utah. That, I mean, there's a certain element of trust, too, that, that goes into that because <laughs> that's part of a, the beauty of being able to watch your cocktails yeah. be made as, a, as an art form, but also uh, just a trust element of you know exactly what ingredients are going in your drink. Yes. Well, uh, in France, it used to be the case where no employer could refuse to serve wine, beer, cider, or mead to their employees in a workplace lunchroom. Spirits were banned, and uh, drivers and medical staff and machine operators were prohibited from imbibing. But otherwise, you couldn't refuse to serve those alcoholic items to employees in the work lunchroom. That's not the same as saying an employee could come and bring your own wine and have it. This was, you couldn't refuse service. <laughs> now, that seems um, odd. Uh, and then later it became uh, the legal right during lunchtime uh, for the Department of Labor to decide which, um, uh, for the bosses at companies to decide under what circumstances they would allow or prohibit alcohol. And that's only been in effect since 2014. That's not Wow. that long ago that's pretty crazy yeah <laughs> it was i mean i know they're definitely more liberal with being able to have a glass of wine with a meal when you're you know a teenager out there i didn't know about the lunchtime rule that's funny <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, two more here one of them in the country of bolivia it is still illegal for a married woman to have more than one glass of wine in a restaurant or bar Wow. And uh, they said at the time of passing a law that it was to reduce the risk of the woman becoming morally or sexually lax, their words, uh, and that it created sufficient enough grounds for a divorce in Bolivia. Uh, now, it's okay for a single woman to have more than one glass of wine, but not a married woman? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And apparently it's okay uh, for the married man to have as much as he would like. As he, yeah. <laughs> but not in, right. not in Pennsylvania, though. What's about what, what about this law in Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania, technically, a man must have written permission from his wife in order for him to buy booze. <laughs> so it goes the other way in Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's not like a doctor's note. It's a, it's a, wife, a wife's note, a spouse's note. That's right. That probably dates back to the end of Prohibition because the women's uh, temperance movement was so strong in trying to preserve the family 
because there were so many men just completely getting inebriated all the time that led to the breakdown of the societal structure, that that probably is where that emanates from uh, after the passage of the 21st Amendment. But it's still still there, and I don't know if uh, my wife would give me a frequent drinker card to carry my wallet or not. That's have to ask her. And uh, lastly, in Italy, it is still illegal to eat or drink anything while on the steps of or standing next to a church, and it is still illegal in Italy to drink on the street in groups of three or more people. Huh. Wow, three or more. Yeah. Two is fine. Yeah, make your just, other friend walk on yeah, the street. Yeah, beat it. <laughs> Two is a couple, three is a crowd. And uh, this may go back to uh, the days of Mussolini and um, coming out of World War II where they didn't want crowds on the streets and uh, anybody in groups of three or more is considered a gang and uh, hard to control the populace when you have gangs running around. Yeah, I mean, it did surprise me a little bit coming from a country that does value uh, drinking and does value social aspects so much, does value family and drinking in groups would be a part of that. But I can understand there when you mention the historical context. Yeah, and the church, there's so many beautiful churches everywhere you go out mm-hmm. there. I could definitely see the not allowing drinking no, no. or eating anywhere near the church. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Just inside, just yeah. trying to <laughs> Coming up next on Cast Club Radio, we're going to talk to Danielle Cardez, creative director of the website Rustic Joyful Food. She's authored multiple cookbooks. Danielle always knew that she has a passion for food, but she also shares her story of perseverance when her first foray into the food world didn't go as planned, but she turned it into something amazing. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, we're joined by our friend, Danielle Cartes. I was like going to try and introduce you easily, but it's hard because you have so many different things to your name. I was like author, television personality, recipe designer. What do you like to oh be gosh. What do you like to be known as? Oh, my gosh. I just like to be known as Danielle Cartes. I feel like there, <laughs> you're right. There are so many titles. That's funny when you're a freelancer, you're just trying to get the bills paid. So you're like, hey, I write recipes. I do, you know, interviews. I work on television. I do this and this. So yeah, I, we're, we're just trying to pay the bills. Oh, I can, <laughs> we can relate to that here. But, but at the very yeah. root of it, you are the creative mind behind yes. Rustic Joyful Food. Absolutely. I do like that title, Creative Director. I think that's, that's my, my, my crowning jewel. Beautiful. How did your love for food start? Oh gosh, when I was a kid, I loved to cook and we grew up humble like we were never you know super dirt poor but every penny mattered I mean you used everything my mom was so good about having a garden there were four of us kids and our two cousins grew up with us and so we just utilized and used everything and there wasn't a ton of money to go around so you didn't waste and I feel like that's really where the root of most cooking comes from where you're just learning how to feed your family and how to feed yourself and how to feed the people that you love because at the real base of it I feel like rustic joyful food for me is all about feeding people and that's really it and that's a real act of love and so I learned that early on from my mom and my family and the way that we grew up and and it just sort of morphed into you know fast forward I'm getting married I'm 26 years old and I was a makeup artist I was flying back and forth to California and New York and doing all this crazy stuff and we're brand new newlyweds and I'm like you know what 
I love cooking. I'm going to open a restaurant. And my husband's like, I'm like, I'll be home more. It'll be incredible. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> like, home more. Incredible. So we decided to open Manola. And then I literally disappeared into the restaurant world. And I knew how to run a business because I have a mind for it. Like, I know, you know, how to run things and how to be a boss and all that great stuff. And when I was 26, I was obviously fumbling through it. Like, I didn't, I didn't know how to do it all that well. But we opened this amazing restaurant. The food was incredible. And and during that time, my husband and I actually started to struggle in our marriage because I was gone the whole time. So we decided that we were going to go our separate ways. And then I found out I was pregnant. And I was like, oh, okay, we have to reevaluate. Let's figure this out. Let's figure out you know, how to be newlyweds and how to be married and all this great stuff. The restaurant ended up closing. And I thought for sure, I mean, we lost everything when the restaurant closed. We lost our home, our cars, you name it. I thought I just made this massive mistake in cooking. I thought I'm never going to cook again. I'm going to work on my marriage. I'm going to work on being a mom and I'm never going to cook again. So for six months after the restaurant closed, we had this brand new, beautiful little baby. And I really feel like God used that whole situation in our life and all the devastation to really bring Mike and I back together. And I was still adamant I'm not going to cook again. And then when Noah was about six months old, he needed to eat. And he was like, it's time to start solid food. And so I started cooking again. We were dirt poor. We had nothing. We lost it all. And I'm like, okay, well, it's much cheaper for me to make his baby food than buy the little pouches. So I started making his baby food. And it sort of awoke that desire to cook. To, you know, to cook. I, I'm a, I'm a cook. I love to feed people. And when Noah was getting excited to eat again, I just, it opened up this whole sort of um, dormant side of me where I was like, this is, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is what we're meant to do. And, and I started sh- slowly, you know, sharing this with people and it really started resonating. And that's what I decided, you know what, we don't have a pot to pee in right now, but I'm going to write a cookbook. And I knew nothing about writing a cookbook. Our friend Jeff was a great mentor at the time. And he sort of showed me the rope as far as food styling. And I mean, this, this is kind of how the story goes. It just started to build on itself. And, and one experience happened and another experience happened. And then it was like, all of a sudden I was food styling. Jeff called one day and said, Hey, I, you know, I've got this opportunity for you to be a food stylist. Can you, it's for the cover of this local magazine, South Sound Magazine. Can you come make chili? And I'm like, no, I, I mean, I can cook the chili. I can't, I'm not a food stylist. Like I, I can't make anything for a picture. And he's like, you just come and do what you do. And so I showed up. My, I remember my sister and I stopped at World Market. We bought things that we thought looked pretty um, <laughs> for the magazine shoot. I thought, this is a nice bowl. Jeff told me to stick to the color blue. <laughs> so we show up. I make the chili. It's great. It makes the cover. And that really, oh, I feel like that was the turning point in our lives where Mike and I were sort of just trying to figure out what do we do now? The restaurant's closed. And we have this baby. We're a family. I want to write this cookbook. And, and that was really what did it. And so we start writing the cookbook. I start compiling all the recipes from the restaurant and telling our story. Because I know I'm like, we could really help people. People don't talk about struggling in their marriage. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about losing everything. They don't talk about their cars getting, you know, hooked up to the repo man and crying when you're trying to get to work that day because your car is mm-hmm. not in your driveway. And if we could bring any sort of levity to that situation, if we could share our experience with people and say, hey, you can make it. You can be down and out and down on your luck, but as long as you have love and you have some hope and there's breath in your lungs, we wanted to share that story. And wow. I had no idea that the form that it was going to take just by being open with our experience, things that we were doing, raising our family, talking to people about, you know, how to down on your luck and get back up again. And I think that people need that right now. They're hungry for it. That's pretty incredible. And I was listening to your story and there's got to be some sort of echo between 
cooking itself and then just life in that way where you can make mistakes, but a lot of the times they turn out to be happy yes. accidents and they turn out to be things that you Absolutely. never could have imagined. Um, yes. Yeah. Have you seen that sort of translate when it comes to just the cooking itself? I mean, it, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like necessity is the mother of invention. Sometimes you're just trying to get dinner on the table and you're looking at your four ingredients and it's like an episode of Chopped and you're by yourself and you're like, and the judges are your family. <laughs> what are we going to make tonight? Like what's True. in the cupboard? What can I put together? How can it be like mildly nourishing and fast? So absolutely. I see that those happy accidents in the kitchen are where some of my most incredible recipes have come from one of I think one of my most famous recipes and it's actually getting published in um, food 52's new genius recipe cookbook is my coconut custard macaroon and I was I'd never made a macaroon before it was like 10 years ago and I'm like you know where's the fun there's no butter there's no yolks in any recipe and I'm like this is cooked <laughs> so I, I modified a, just a basic sugary macaroon recipe the haystacky coconut kinds not the little French cuties and I threw egg yolk and butter and it was just like this star was born and that recipe is sort of gone viral and taken on a life of its own but that was a total just because it was like why not add the whole egg I'm not going to do anything with this one egg yolk I'm not going to throw it away so most recipes for a coconut haystack macaroon just call for um, egg white and sugar and I was like, I like butter. So we <laughs> put a couple of tablespoons of Everyone butter and vanilla butter. extract. Yes. <laughs> sea salt. And then it just turned into this caramely, chewy, incredible cookie. And so that was, we used to serve that at the restaurant. I mean, people would wait in line for, you know, before we opened just to get these big, cool cookies. And they've just taken on, like I said, they've taken off. So that's kind of fun. That book comes out this this fall and that's food 52 which is like a food juggernaut and they they're like yeah we think that's a genius recipe so that always feels good you're like i did that yeah and happy accidents that's what we're talking about you mentioned you know everything you've been through with your your husband and uh to come out on the other end of it you know stronger than ever but now you two working together as well on on rustic joyful food what's that like working together on a creative endeavor Oh my gosh. First of all, Mike, it's so funny when sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees. Mike is one of the most brilliant men that I have ever met. And that's not just saying because he's my husband. Mm-hmm. He's so smart and he's so thoughtful at everything that he looks at. His brain works completely differently from mine. And for a long time, I wanted it to be the opposite. I wanted his brain to work just like mine. I'm like, <laughs> this is my opinion. You have to share it. And when I stopped wanting Mike to be my clone and started accepting Mike where he was at, and I started recognizing the gifts that he had, and it was like, the you know, the whole world opened up to me as far as like, we can be this incredible team. Like, I love business. I can grab clients. I could not tell you how to take a photo for the life of me besides <laughs> using my iPhone. But Mike is into F-stops and ISO and Aperture and all these crazy terms. And he taught himself. Like when we were going through our, you know, the, our struggles and early on in our marriage and trying to figure out what the heck we're going to do, Mike was like, I have an interest in photography. And he just picked it up. And I mean, I'm biased because I live with the man, but I think he's a brilliant photographer. I look at how he makes a pork roast look sexy and I'm like, that is really incredible. Because <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a real talent and just that he is such a renaissance man. So I'm always appreciative of the person that he is. And because he's so different from me, I still to this day, you know, 11 years after we've been married, find that so attractive. I think at the core of it, we're good friends and we're always working on our friendship first. Because if, if you can't be friends with the person that you're not only married to, but running your business, like our business has to succeed. This is what we do. I love that uh, so much of cooking and what you do is holistic. And we talked yeah. to you a little bit about, about this 
off air, but can you tell us about the current project that you've got going on? Because it, it discusses this uh, very subject, how, how much more than food uh, your creative endeavors yes. are. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So I'm writing a book right now called A Pocket Full of Pretzels. And it's a collection of essays and um, stories about our life and how, you know, we had absolutely nothing and we've really come back and created a life um, with our experiences. And you have to have a sense of humor. I mean, I I have a funny sense of humor. It's sort of um, not everybody's sense of humor, mm-hmm. but I can laugh at things that are sort of devastating. Like it's it was always a defense mechanism for me to laugh. And so we're turning that into something that can bring hope for people. And we're writing our stories down and all the funny things and how, you know, we got to New York with peanut butter sandwich and no money in our pocket. And we're, here we are going on the Rachel Ray show. So I feel like there are so many experiences that people can relate to and they need to hear it because they need hope. So that project will be, we're crossing our fingers because we do everything in house. We are our own publishers. So that will be coming out this Christmas time. We'll be offering pre-order in October. Okay, perfect. And if people want to get in on that, can they just check it out at rusticjoyfulfood.com? Yes, if you yeah, rusticjoyfulfood.com or you can also follow along on Instagram. I put I put so much on Instagram as far as like the shows that we're on or attending. I, I get to work pretty regularly on the Hallmark channel, the home and family show down in Los Angeles. So everybody everything we do is always on Instagram or the website. So people can kind of check out and follow along. Perfect. If you want to see pictures of sexy pot roasts, that's where yes. people can follow along. <laughs> Absolutely, because everybody needs to see a picture of a sexy pot roast. Yes, they do. We need more of those in our <laughs> yeah. life. Well, quickly before we get out of here, we like to ask everybody, if we were hosting a cocktail party, uh, what would we be drinking at this cocktail party? Because I know that you love a good cocktail, too. I love a good cocktail, especially with Heritage. So I would definitely be serving you something citrusy, like a French 75 with a fun Ooh, twist. Yeah. I like it. What what would be your fun twist? More citrus juice. I feel like sometimes there's always like just an ounce of grapefruit or like half a teaspoon of lime juice. I mean, we're going to be putting zest in it and maybe two kinds of citrus on top of the champagne or Prosecco and the vodka. So I feel like I want all that flavor. And then maybe we're going to infuse a simple syrup with rosemary or something kind of fun because we're coming into fall. So one of those woodsy kind of fun herbs, we might be making like a lemon thyme simple syrup. I love it. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time out of the busy schedule to chat with us. Thank you for having me. This was great. We love it. We'll make sure everybody checks out rusticjoyfulfood.com. Yes. And you can get our books on um, Amazon. So both of our books are offered on Amazon too as well. That's kind of fun. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah. Coming up next on Cast Club Radio, well, we just talked to Danielle Cartes about necessity being the mother of invention when it comes to cooking, but the Moscow Mule kind of came about that way as well. We discuss that next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Just a few minutes, we'll have a new cocktail recipe for you, one that you can make in a big group setting. If you're hosting a party, sort of wrapping up your summer, hosting a a party or get together with your family or friends. Um, And in the meantime, we're going to discuss the history of a, a pretty popular drink, especially the drink, the actual container that you drink it out of. I'm talking about the Moscow Mule and that iconic copper mug. Because spoiler alert, the cocktail recipe this week, might involve a Moscow mule. <laughs> but is, right. is this a beverage that you guys have been enjoying or been enjoying, especially the last couple of years where it seems like they are everywhere? They are. And you see lots of variations on them. Uh, the iconic Moscow mule uses just regular vodka, unflavored uh, with ginger beer. But you uh, are seeing lots of variations with people using different flavors of vodka, uh, adding spices, 
um, adding kind of jalapeno heat. Uh, you also see uh, we, we have several recipes at Heritage Distilling where we're using other spirits besides vodka, like uh, gin and whiskeys and bourbons, uh, to make uh, riffs on the traditional Moscow mule. I also like the dark and stormy the with the dark rum and ginger beer. Yes. Good too. Yeah, and I like how a lot of them, at least when I've gone other places, seem to be they take like a little regional rift on it, sort of they're making it, whether it's with local ingredients or something they're famous for. Um, so that's been fun to see. But, Maura, you found this article from Vine Pear, which details a little bit of the history of the Moscow Mule being made in that iconic copper mug. It's a pretty crazy story. Yeah, it seems like it, like many things, that it was kind of born out of an accident. So John G. Martin and his brother, who made up Hublin and Brothers at the time, had recently purchased Smirnoff Distillery. They found themselves with a surplus of vodka and a surplus of ginger beer. And then at the time, there was an immigrant named Sophie Berezinski from Russia who came over with 2,000 copper mugs that her, her father had sent her over with. Her husband threatened to get rid of them if she didn't make a quick sell because he was sick of them. And she came into the Hublin and Brothers bar and they decided to get rid of their surplus together. <laughs> Just worked out perfectly, like necessity being the mother of all invention. Now, this happened in the 1940s, right? Like she came over from Russia in 1941 with all of these copper mugs, it's, that would seem like it would take up a little bit of storage on her way over. But this chance meeting between these two parties is really what led to it. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a controversy. There is someone that says that the drink was actually born on the East Coast. And this version claims that the third person involved in the drink's birth was Rudolf Kanet, who was the president of the Pierre Smirnoff's Hublin's Vodka Division. According to the third version, the three were sipping, snacking, and working toward a brilliant business decision that would benefit the entire trio when the bartender poured them a mingling of vodka and ginger beer with a touch of lemon juice, and a few days later, the Moscow Mule was named. Mm. Well, it wouldn't be sort of a, an actual story without there being sort of a little urban myth element to it, a little controversy over, over how it was created. Either way, apparently Smirnoff had ties to the original. Had a big role in it. <laughs> Absolutely. Justin, maybe you can speak to this in, in the past, but has, has there ever been sort of a happy accident that, ha that has happened at Heritage Distilling or something where you've come up with a drink that maybe you never intended to exist? Well, yeah. For us, it is our BSB 103, the 103 proof version. Uh, I think we've talked about this in the past where we had customers who uh, are members of the cast club and they like BSB and they wanted us to put the brown sugar bourbon in their private cask to age. So it aged for extra time. And when it came out, it was 103 proof as opposed to 60 proof, the regular <laughs> proof of BSB. And the flavor was phenomenal. And they said, we want to bottle it. And it just happened to be at 103 proof and it rhymes. So we called it BSB 103 and it's doing very well in the market. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the cool things about the cast club is that you must get a little bit of inspiration everywhere. It must be kind of a community effort. It is. There's a lot of interaction that goes on between the members, um, the cast club members. Uh, sometimes it's the, we have friends and families getting multiple casks to share and compete against each other. But there's <laughs> a lot of regular interaction with our staff and uh, uh, in the distilleries, working with them to achieve the flavor profile they want. And uh, we're going to be releasing at Tonal Wine and More in just a few weeks a uh, cast club uh, labeled whiskey inspired by one of the recipes we found uh, and for the first time it's gonna be available at retail uh, in the state of washington wow nice. at sea from from cast club to available at pretty much everywhere yeah and if people do still want to get in on the cast club since you've opened up some new locations here in seattle 
they can still do that, right? They can. Uh, the new Capitol Hill location has a beautiful, it's our biggest cask club we've built to date in terms of the number of, of casks. And Ballard also has a very active cast club, and we have people signing up uh, every day, sometimes multiple people signing up on the weekends. And we're just excited because, uh, you know, people feel as though they have a vested interest in what they are making for themselves. It's pretty darn cool. In the meantime, Justin, you've got an epic cocktail recipe for our, for our listeners, and it involves the Moscow Mule. Yeah, well, football season is upon us, and uh, coming up is the last preseason game. And the first two regular season games for the Seahawks are road games. They're playing at Denver and then at Chicago in the regular season. And so we thought, since they're out of town, maybe people are hosting Seahawks viewing parties, and they should make large batches of Moscow Mule. It's great if you get one of those beautiful glass drink dispensers. Uh, make a great presentation for your party. Starts off with a few very easy ingredients. Get a 52-ounce container of Simply Limeade at the grocery store or Costco. 16 to 17 ounces uh, of ginger beer. Oftentimes, you're going to find it in a 16 or 17-ounce bottle. You can get a big, uh, high-quality ginger beer or multiple small uh, glass bottles of of, uh, your favorite ginger beer. Three cups of batch number 12 vodka to celebrate football season. Mm -hmm. And two limes sliced in the wheels. Put it all together. Um, Ideally, if you're going to have ice in there to keep it chilled, put the ice in a container that floats so it doesn't water down the drink. And uh, make sure you've got plenty of copper mugs to uh, serve the Moscow Mule in. That copper, because it's such a great conductor of heat, will help keep the drink uh, nice and icy cold. Beautiful. It probably is a nice visual, too, to have at your party. Especially with the limes floating in there, cut into uh, thin wheels. It's uh, the color of the limeade and uh, the limes in a tall glass container dispenser is just beautiful. Definitely in the football spirit. I love it. As always, you can check out this recipe online at heritagedistilling.com, where you can also download episodes of the Cast Club radio podcast. If you've missed a few episodes, don't worry. You can catch up there or at cairoradio.com. Just click on the podcast tab and uh, click on Cast Club Radio. As always, you can also find us at Facebook on Cast Club Radio. You can also find us at Heritage Distilling at uh, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and so on. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling, part of Cairo Weekends on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM.